0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone.
2: Welcome back to the New Books in Disability. Today, I feel, um, we're happy to introduce Dr. Janice Rieger to join us to introduce her new book, "Design Disability, and Embodiment. So the first thing I want to do today is to invite Dr. Rieger to, to introduce herself to us.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today to chat with you about my new book, Um, and it's very exciting to share that with your broad audience. Um, Just a little bit about myself. Um, Since 1994, I would I've been working in disability studies and creating cultures of inclusion. Um, As a young as a young child, I grew up with a mother that was a grand sorry grandmother that was blind, and so I think it really. I think it really impacted me as a young child to see how exclusionary the world is, um, how exclusionary the built environment is, and the kind of systemic ableism, even at that young age, that was apparent to me. And so I think for a long time, even as a child, I knew that I was going to work in creating better access and inclusion um, for people with disabilities in the built environment. So... I went to university for far too many years, got far too many degrees um, and excited that I've been able to work across Canada, United States, Europe, and now in Australia in creating uh, more access and inclusion for, and really justice for people with disabilities.
2: Okay. Thanks so much for your answer. So I very appreciate you to get on your introduction of the origin of you interested in studying disability. So for a nasty question, now let's turn to your book. So for your book, my first question is that I'm, I want to watch you talk about how to we need these embodiments in order to pursue a you new know, check the trajectory through embodied mappings?
1: So um, this is an area that I'm really interested in. And, and the idea of the embodied mappings is actually a methodology that I have created uh, well, I started it during around 2014, and I've really started to publish on it and hone in on it. And it's this idea that we have this kind of embodied knowledge, um, which you know I refer to as techne, which comes from the work of, of some of my um, scholars and mentors. And this idea that we can't understand people's lived experience of disability without understanding their embodied experience um, within environments or within the various kinds of experiences they have. And so this idea of mappings or embodied mappings, I've started to use throughout all of my research. And it actually has this kind of eight phase approach where the M stands for the multimodal and multisensorial. And so it's important that we look at these multisensorial understandings of the way people with disabilities understand spaces and understand their lived experience and their different knowledge systems. The A in mapping stands for altering. It's this idea that we need to think about the altering of our approaches in the way that we do research with people with disabilities. The P and the other P are performative and pressing. So again, this idea of an embodied criticality and and it's performative understandings of moving through space. The I, of course, in mapping stands for inclusion. And it's about including people with disabilities in all of our research. So the idea about not about us without us. The N is navigating and narrating, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but it's this method that I've created in terms of of working with people with disabilities called dialoguing while wandering, and it's how we move and co-constitute knowledge together. The G of mappings is generative, which means that we need to co-constitute information and research together as one, and the, the S is surrendering, and that idea of it's really important that we go beyond our own assumptions and our own biases and stigmas and think about other people's experiences and risk ourselves at these kind of moments of unknowingness. And so I've created this this methodology and these methods around embodied mappings for us to start to reimagine what research um, in disability studies can look like. I'll be saying so much we also. For next question, I'm wondering how
2: sound and a soundscape map on the ecology in the space, here, enlighten and the private, uh, sorry, produce identity and a shape new way of knowing in the space and the station just Well,
1: thank you very much. It's interesting because um, my work in sound and kind of acousticology has been ongoing since the early 2000s actually. My master's degree was around sound art and this idea of the power of of sound and the power of acoustics. And primarily it's it's to destabilize um, and to, you know, privilege vision. And because a lot of my work actually is working with people who are blind or have low vision, I realized for a long period of time the importance of sound, so not only in the way that people use echolocation um, to situate themselves, or the tapping of their white cane, um, but also the way that even able-bodied people um, use sound to navigate, but also use sound as a differing knowledge system. So, my work in in sound and and soundscapes has started to translate it to how architecture and design allows us to see see sound almost and understand sound and how it allows us to navigate through those spaces and create these kind of alternate identities and so I'm kind of bringing in critical disability studies with acoustomology studies to reimagine spaces and places um beyond again these kind of ocular centric notions of space and place and My work in this chapter looks at at Canadian um, War Museum and Canada Sports Hall of Fame and how these particular sounds direct and navigate us through those spaces and also how sound can either be um, exclusionary or inclusionary depending on the way that it's created and depending on, you know, the users and their abilities as well. So it's a really... It's a really fun chapter. I got really excited about it because I was bringing together about twenty years of my work in sound and this idea of an anthropology of the senses. So I think I think readers will really find it opens up a lot of new trajectories for them in in kind of this anthropology of the senses and acoustemology.
2: This is so much. So for the last question, I'm wondering why you talk about how policy development often we as an opinion meaning by which to enact the change and to create inclusion within the field of inclusive design.
1: Thank you for that. And so this chapter looks specifically at um, this idea of co-creating inclusion through short films and this understanding that, you know, most of us doing disability studies work sometimes don't think of ourselves as policy people. And I myself don't think of myself as a policy person, right? I come from architecture and design and creative practice. But the more and more I engage in critical disability studies and the more I work with people with disabilities, I've realized that the way that we can make really systemic change is through policy development. And so what I've realized, though, is when we have these large policy documents, even if they are translated to easy English or plain language, they're still not accessible for so many people with disabilities that it's actually impacting upon. And so no one wants to read a very long document, right? That's created by a policymaker or a government. So what I started to do is I started to use creative research methods and creative methods to reimagine how we can impact upon policy. And so I've started to create these short films and co-design them with people with disabilities. So one of the things, one of the films, is called "Wandering on the Braille Trail," and it's it's about bringing, bringing notice to policymakers and urban planners and city governments about how people who are blind or have low vision navigate urban spaces through the Braille trail. And so, um, Sarah, who is who is blind, and my colleague Megan and I, we filmed ourselves walking and dialoguing while wandering on the Braille trail so that we can then use that film, it's only a short film, it's about six minutes long, to present that to policy to present that to audiences um, of people with disability, to present that to city councilors and government workers and educators. So what I've found is that film and video is a much more accessible medium to impact policy development and impact real systemic change um, for people with disabilities. And so this chapter really starts to unpack that, and it invites, actually, the readers to rethink about using film and video. I'm not a filmmaker, of course, and I've done animations as well. I'm not an animator. But by bringing in those people with those expertise, we're actually able to create a much more inclusive medium um, for, for disability studies.
2: Thank you so much. So after talking about the college development, um, I'm wondering why we'll talk about something about privilege? I'm wondering about how the artist, the general party, the monster, deconstructs constructs the political of the visual over all other corporate real senses in her work.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting chapter, actually, chapter five. Um, and this actually comes out of my master's research um, from some time ago that I never really had the opportunity to unpack And to publish on, and so because my work around inclusion and disability, um, you know, has been happening since 1994. Obviously, I had, you know, years and decades of work that I had not shared with audiences before, and so I was quite excited to write on this work that I had done from almost 20 years ago, actually, and how how interestingly it was still very relevant today, and this again goes back to my interest in sound and that kind of acoustics and the interesting idea of the museum as this kind of ivory tower and the museum space as this privileging of vision privileging of people who are able bodied privileging of people who are of higher education and the museum is always this, this understanding of a white cube and the, 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 the kind of protocols around being in a museum. So you're supposed to be quiet and you have a certain distance that you're supposed to view artwork from. And so Janet Cardiff's work is a sound piece. It's an installation work that's quite loud and it makes you wander around with these different voices. Um, and so it really allows this interruption um, of this ableist space and this ableist kind of architecture and this ableist museum through sound and through this, this really interesting kind of almost critical disability studies narrative. I mean, obviously Janet Cardiff as an artist was not necessarily looking at, you know, being critical of, of disability and ability, but my interpretation of her work has done just that. And so um, I think it's really a great chapter for um, academics and students and practitioners and anyone interested in understanding how we can think beyond vision. Um, at these more embodied and corporal senses and in understanding people's experience. So, really quite a fun chapter. The other thing about that chapter, which is really interesting, is a bit different, that chapter, and it, it's inclusive of intertextuality. And by that, I mean, I wrote this so it's my voice and this kind of poetic embodiment weaving in with more academic voice. So it's a it's a really interesting chapter in terms of the different ways that we can write as writers. This of course this this work that I'm doing of course is this kind of ableist and, and feminist critique, um, called Feminine Écriture, um, by Helen Sissou. And it's me kind of entangling my academic voice with a poetic poetic voice, a poetic embodiment. So you'll so the reader will see these kind of poetic Interjections, which um, again is a, is kind of deconstructing this understanding of writing as a very privileged ableist medium, and just bringing in my kind of reveries and my thoughts, um, you know, as as it weaves through. So again, a really interesting example of how we can think beyond academic writing.
2: Thank you so much for your answer for the chapter six. Um, I'm wondering about the new ways of designing for people with disability through a co-constructive clinical access approach.
1: So, yeah, so this is something I've been exploring only over probably the last year or two. So this is quite a new direction for my work. and um, And it's a critical access approach. And this idea that the way that we... Design for people with disabilities is primarily based. So these are architects or designers, urban planners, really anyone who's who's in design, even industrial designers, fashion, anything that we make in terms of of material culture, um, and the understanding that this is often done through guidelines or building codes or you know prescriptive measures, which are devoid of the lived experience and knowledge of people with disabilities, right? So we don't know how sometimes these building codes come into place. Very often they have this imaginary user which is often able-bodied or if they are disabled they're often only representative of someone in a manual wheelchair. And so they're really quite um, at an arm's length or distance from the true lived experience of people with disabilities and so In this chapter, I talk about two different ways that I've kind of um, intervened in the idea that we understand how to create better access and inclusion. I give an example in Australia that I did with the QT Art Museum, where I worked with um, two um, people who were blind and had low vision. And we kind of um, uh, wandered while we were walking through the space and and audio recorded and video recorded our wanderings, which I then made into a film um, as kind of this post-occupancy evaluation of the space and how their lived experience and their embodied experience of the space could be used to train curators and architects and students and designers to better design for people with those particular disabilities. The other example is a great example I did with my colleague Mark in in Canada, and we we did something we call disaudits. So it's this idea of not doing an access audit, but actually dissing the idea of an audit or disability audit. So we were working in a university that had hired an expert to do an accessibility audit. And then, of course, that audit was put away in some file cabinet, probably never to be um, put into the actual built environment. So because Mark was blind and had worked at that institution for a long time, him and I decided to do a design intervention, almost a, an activist campaign. And we tagged up the university in terms of areas that were really hazardous for people with disabilities, areas that needed um, attention in terms of creating better access and inclusion for the students with disabilities and staff, And so these were our ways of together with people with disabilities co-constituting a critical access approach and this being critical of the kind of accessible audits, um, that are often done without people with disabilities. So my approach is co-designed always with people with disabilities. And so that chapter is quite fun. It's quite kind of revolutionary. It's quite activist. Um, and I encourage others to kind of take up the cause and try to understand these critical access approach,
0: um, and these disaudits. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda.
2: Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA,
1: member FDSC. So,
2: thank you so much. So, after to talk about the new ways, that's us turn to something old. So, I'm wondering about the history of spatial histories and its relationship to ableism and the cattle.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, in addition to being you know, an archi- in architecture and obviously a designer and, and practicing in that space and really pushing for future trajectories and new ways that we can rethink how to kind of deconstruct ableism and the systemic bias, I also am a historian. So um, for years I taught art and architectural history Um, across Canada and here in Australia as well. And it's been really interesting for me over the last two decades, because when I started to study history, of course, there was nothing about people with disabilities in our art and architectural history courses. But even during that period of time, probably 25 years ago, there was also not a single female artist or architect in any of our books. So we've come a long way in the last two decades. And And in terms of understanding, you know, and critiquing this Eurocentric Western canon, uh, often of male, white, European, you know, exemplars of of people that we're supposed to look towards um, and started to open up to more of a global history, but more than anything, started to open it up to alternate histories or untold histories and so I'm quite excited by these this chapter and then some of the other work that I've been doing over the last couple of years because I decided that I was sick and tired of of architectural and design history being taught through this very white ableist male lens and that it was time to reinvent the way that we t- teach history. And it was time to do that through critical disability studies and an ableist lens. And so to my knowledge, I think I'm one of the only people to teach kind of architecture and design history through a spatial justice kind of ableist lens. Um, And so I rewrote all the curriculum, which I have put in this book. So it's a great great chapter for academics, for historians, for even architectural and and design critics, but also people doing work in in disability history and critical disability studies. Because I... Taught the students essentially about how architecture is ableism, is ableist, and how architecture has been ableist since the very beginning of time. And it's segregationalist and exclusionary. And so when we look at that lens and we look at different periods of time, when we look at different styles, I point out these kind of ableist biases. And so it's pretty exciting to bring in these new perspectives of power, these new perspectives. Um, of ableism and reinvent the way we talk about spatial histories and deconstruct this very very old kind of canon that we've we've inherited.
2: Thank you so much. For the next question, I'm wondering okay. about how museums and galleries have made the efforts to be more inclusive over the last ten years, primarily through the emphasis on the studies.
1: Yeah, this chapter is interesting because it's, um, again, it's bringing in some of my newer work as well in terms of looking at inclusive ecologies. So my PhD uh, and um, some of my postdoctoral work was around ecologies and ecological thinking. And so outside of what we think about ecologies in terms of biology, natural systems, my work looks at this more of a human ecology and this understanding that we operate within this system. And obviously in terms of people with disabilities and we operate within a very ableist system. And so understanding how we can map the micro and macro of ecologies allows us to make really significant changes um, and you know, really, really just environments and inclusive environments. And so this chapter looks at this kind of idea of careful co-designing in more than human worlds, So this chapter brings in some of my work that I've recently been doing in in post-qualitative methodologies, as well as kind of actor network theory, and this idea of human and non-human actors, and how when we talk about disability, we have to talk about the things that impact or upon people with disabilities. So chairs, or stairs, or, you know, left-handed scissors for right-handed scissors, for instance, for people who are left-handed. And all of the things that we create that are not human that actually are exclusionary for people with disabilities. So, in this chapter, I particularly dissect that understanding of careful co designing and inclusion through museum and gallery studies. And I talk about how it's important for us to move really through this, beyond this idea of visitor studies. So, a lot of museums and galleries try to create better access and inclusion by just having visitors fill out cards about their experience, right? Which isn't a really good understanding of the embodied experience, especially of people with disabilities. So my work questions that and it puts the emphasis on co-designing these kinds of new understandings of museums and galleries with people with disabilities. And this understanding that we move from this idea of fixing, right? This idea that codes, guidelines and visitor studies are quite fixed to this idea of sharing, where we start to share our stories a little bit more, but again, there's still that kind of distancing of someone with disabilities sharing their story, and then it being interpreted to this idea of caring, and that caring concept is co-designing with people with disabilities. Again, that idea, not about us, without us. Um, and so this chap is really good for many different audiences, and especially those working in museum and gallery work. Um, Thank you so much. For last question today, I want to want you to talk about
2: what spatial justice is, the future of spatial justice. It's the relationship between power, leadership, and DFA.
1: Yeah, this is interesting again because um, this comes from some of my research that I did with the spatial history students here in Australia. And so, over a period of a couple of years, I um, surveyed the students, the first year students in architecture, landscape architecture, and interior design or interior architecture. And I asked them what they thought spatial justice was. And a lot of them didn't really know at the beginning of the unit. And then after we had talked about how spatial justice is manifested in the built environment, they really started to understand their designs quite differently. They understood that Designing for inclusion and access is not just about following code or guidelines. Um, it's, it's about understanding it from a justice-based lens that everyone has a right to access and take part in, you know, society. And that when designers and architects design things that are exclusionary, um, they're actually creating ableist design and ableist architecture. And so, By the students starting to understand a justice-based lens to their work, and not just social justice, but that spatial justice, that that justice is absolutely manifested in the built environment. And this idea of power and this idea of perspectives of power and how power is also manifested in the built environment. So, you know, depending on whether we we're in a wheelchair and we approach a set of stairs, that power is manifested in the design of those stairs. Whether, you know, we are blind and we come across, um, you know, various obstacles in the built environment, again, that power has been manifested and designed into those spaces. So my work in this chapter is moving that beyond, thinking, thinking differently about the relationships we have with space, with architects and designers, and with people with disabilities, and looking at this understanding of allyship. Um, which, again, I think is quite new to the understanding of architecture and architectural design, because I think it's important that architects become allies, disability allies, that we don't have that distancing and that imaginary person with disability when we design, but actually that we become allies and embedded into our communities and embedded into the social structures and the, the service providers of people with disabilities around us so that we can be good allies. So that when we go to design, we're actually doing that with people with disabilities um, through that allyship model. Another thing that I've presented in the book is this concept of design for all, which again comes from Europe and comes from the European Institute of Design and Disability. For many people in North America, um, in Australia, and other parts of the world, design for all is actually a very uh, new concept or a new term because most of us are familiar with universal design or inclusive design, but I actually think design for all is the new direction that we're going to be going in. And it's more inclusionary of all people, of all abilities. Um, and so I talk a little bit about design for all, give a little bit of a history there and talk about design for all in relation to spatial justice and and the future of the work that we're doing in critical disability studies and how we can think more broadly about um, what we've been doing for the last 50 years and think quite differently through co-design and through the embodied and lived experience of people with disability.
2: Thank you so much for answering again. So at the end of our episode today, I want to directly talk to our audience so I want to say, as a disability historian or disability scholar, in a general sense, I learned a lot from Dr. Jens Rieger's news book, Design, Disability, and Embodiment. And I think everybody with any interest in either design study, architectural studies, uh, disability study, and the intersection or interaction between those few uh, subjects, I highly recommend you should buy a copy and read this one I read a copy of Dr. James Reader's news book. Again, I want to repeat the title: "The Design Disability and embodiment It's a fantastic book, and I, as, as I say, as a disability, while I'm a historian, I still learn a lot. Disability historian, I still learn a lot from reading this fantastic book about design, about disability, about architecture. So, thank you so much for listening to our episode today. So have a good day.